The testimony of what Jesus has done on the cross is displayed through the gifts that he has given his children. In this episode, we explore how Jesus turned the tables on sin and brought us together to cultivate a deep love for each other. All this and more as we continue our year of the family. I'm Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. We're going to continue our series in Ephesians. Last week, we looked at the importance of unity in the church and the character traits of each member Um, how they're supposed to reflect the character of Christ. Um, Paul called the church at Ephesus in in the first part of chapter 4 to walk worthy of the calling of which they had been called. Okay, they had been, uh, they would do this through submitting to the authority of the Father. In this section, we're going to look at verses uh, 7 through 16, and in this section, Paul's going to describe what Christ has done in overcoming sin. He's going to talk about how each individual contributes to the overall success of the church and also what success looks like for the people of God. So something that is important for us to think about first is that uh, Paul's going to quote from Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is, uh, particularly the verse that he quotes, is verse 18. And um, in it, there is this imagery in Psalm uh, 68 where the... uh, the king is going to be conquering his, uh, the rebellion against him. And um, in a reversal of what's customary, typically what happened was when a king would take over a people, he would demand tribute from them. He would take payment of their goods, their treasure. He would take some of them as slaves. He would put them to work, and he would basically take all the good stuff that they have in their possession. But to flip things on its head, what happens is, is the picture is that Jesus, as the conquering king, will come in and he will, he will take over the fight, and then he turns around in exact opposite fashion of the world. He gives gifts to the people that he conquers. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So as we are going to unpack this, I want you to be thinking, I'm going to give you your question for the car up front. I want you to be thinking about this. In what ways are you cultivating a deep love for the church in your family? In what ways are you cultivating a deep love for the church in your family? Now, to follow that up, here's another question. How do you really feel about the church? Not the church in general, but I mean, how do you, how do you really feel about the people who are sitting next to you in this room? How do you really feel about the people who you see in worship on a Sunday morning after Sunday school? How we see the church is important because it also affects how we see God. Because if His Word says we're supposed to be building each other up or we're supposed to be in this together, if we have a divisive attitude towards towards other people, we're living in conflict to Scripture and we're living in conflict to God. So it's one thing for me to say, I love the church, I love God's people, but then I avoid certain people on a Sunday morning because I just don't like them. That's something we need to be thinking about as we unpack this text. So Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 7, and we're going to go to verse 16. Paul continues his thought, and he says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he who descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Verse 11, And he himself gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, 
to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and all the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Okay, let's start with this first part. Verses 7 through 10 shows us what Christ has done. He starts off by saying each one was giving a, given according to the measure of Christ's gift. That is, grace is not determined by what we have done in our rebellion, but it's determined according to the measure of Christ's gift, the priceless and infinitely, infinitely valuable life of God's Son. So think about it this way, that God has, has not determined what we get based on what we have done. He determines what we get based on His gift through Jesus. So, so you probably have heard before that's, that something is as valuable as whatever someone will pay for it, right? Gold is valuable because people will pay a certain price for it. Same thing with diamonds and rubies and all other kinds of precious things. We are valuable not because we have intrinsic value, but, we're, but we are valuable because of what God has paid for us. And that means that He has used the blood of His Son, Jesus. He's paid for us with His Son. That means that we are of infinite value to Him. So he says, by the measure of the grace of Christ's gift, we have been given grace. He quotes Psalm 68, and the language of that psalm describes how God is connected to his dwelling place with his people. Many scholars believe that that Psalm 68 is about bringing the Ark of the Covenant into into Jerusalem. And I want to read this real quick because it's only a couple of verses. Um, It's Psalm 68, verses um, 15 through 18. Paul specifically quotes verse 18, but um, this is an interesting piece of Scripture. David says this in Psalm 68. He says, A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. Uh, A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has prized for His habitation? Surely Yahweh will will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You've ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that Yah, that is God, may dwell there. The image here, so, so the, the mountain range of Bashan is on the northern part of the kingdom of Israel. And it is this incredible mountain range. Okay, Think of the Colorado Rockies. Now compare the Colorado Rockies with Turkey Mountain. That's the image that that David's painting for us here in Psalm 68. He says, you look at the mountains of Bashan. They are glorious and they're regal, but God doesn't choose to dwell there. God chooses to dwell in this little bitty molehill on the mountain where Jerusalem sits. What he's doing is he is drawing a picture for us of how God looks at... um, how he's revealing this, the, the gospel to the world. From the human perspective, man, God could have so much uh, better setting, so much of a better setting to be able to display the gospel than our lives. And yet, God chooses 
Turkey Mountain, you and me, over the Colorado Rockies. So what he's saying here is, is, is that this picture of Jesus uh, coming and conquering uh, the rebellion is exactly the opposite from what we would expect. Paul draws this imagery from quoting what God has done in his conquest of rebellious sinners. He uses this language where he says that he has ascended on high and he's led captive a host of captives. The wording implies that he has not just taken control of prisoners of war, but that he has literally taken captive the conflict itself. He's not just overcome an obstacle, but rather he has made the obstacle obedient to him. Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death, but that Jesus has overturned death in how in his sacrifice on the cross. So what does that mean for us? That means that Christ has done an incredible thing. He has gone as high as the highest heights, and he has gone as low as the lowest lows, so that he can give men grace. It comes into greater focus when you think about Paul's teaching in Romans 8, where he says that God works all things together for our good. Consider this idea that God has given each one of us a measure of grace in, uh, in measure according to the value of what, what Christ has done. That means that he has left no stone unturned. In verses 9 and 10, Paul gives us an editorial note. Look at this. He says, Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens, so that he might fill all things. What this implies is this this is talking about uh, Jesus in the grave. Uh, Both Peter and Paul describe, um, describe, use the same language, and they quote the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, uh, talking about Jesus going into the depths of the earth, what, he's, what they're talking about is they're, they're, they're using poetic language to describe Jesus, the light of the world, the light of all men, dying. Not that he went into some cosmic place and started doing all these things while he was waiting to be arisen, but that he literally laid his life down. And he did that for the sole purpose that he might fill all things. What that means is that there is nowhere that Christ has not gone for the sake of filling all creation with his presence, power, and authority. He took those who were dead in sin, and he turned around and he made them alive in Christ. But he has gone to the extreme degree. So now, we learn that how Christ is working. Here's what I want you to be thinking about. Is that unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. We are not meant to be exactly the same. And it's that way on purpose. Look at these next, few, these next two verses in verses 11 and 12. And he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, so he, he goes on, he says that there's a number of roles that God's given to his children within the body of Christ as he fills creation with his power. Okay, so let's start with this. He starts with apostles. Apostles is, um, is it, it's, it's a two-parted um, role. In the early church, um, the apostles were people who were specifically sent by Jesus Christ to go do ministry. These are the 120 that are in the upper room, and these are, uh, and this is Paul by his Greek name, Saul by his Hebrew name. They had a special dispensation of the Holy Spirit. God had given them a special ability to be able to discern the truth and to know how to shepherd God's people. So think about this. 
there are a series of accounts in the book of Acts where someone tries to deceive the apostles in order to gain uh, favor with God's people, try to manipulate God's people. And as a result, God, uh, God gives judgment. The first lesson is Ananias and Sapphira. These are two people who try to conspire against the, the Holy Spirit and, and try to conspire against the church. They come to Peter and they say, we sold a piece of property. Here's all of the, all of the profit. But they purposefully held back a portion of the profit for themselves. And yet, because of the Holy Spirit and his work in the apostle Peter's life, Peter saw right through their deception and God struck both of them dead. Later on in Acts, we see a guy named uh, Simon the Magician who tries to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit because he's, he sees Peter and John, two apostles, laying their hands on people and the Holy Spirit coming on them. And as a result, Peter rebukes him and they kick him out of the church. Later on, there's another magician who tries to uh, manipulate Paul again. And Paul uh, convicts him and he strikes him blind through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the office of the apostle is something that is someone who specifically was sent out by God. The word apostolos is a Greek word that literally means just to be a messenger to be sent out. Okay. The other side of this, those who have been given as the gift as as uh, the role of apostles within the New Testament church, these are people who have a innate desire and gift to be sent out. These are people that are um, always bringing people back into the church. They, um, they have a distinct ability to be able to, um, to build coalitions wherever they go. Now, the second office is the office of a prophet. Now, prophets in the Old Testament are defined by those who, by, by um, very key f- uh, features, okay? I want to be sure that I say this correctly. So there are some people that, that wrongly believe that the gift of prophecy is someone who can tell the future, that is not the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy, especially in the Old Testament, was defined by two things. One of them was someone who had been gifted by God to call people back to His Word. That's simply what they did. God has said this, this is who we need to be. The second part of prophecy, of those who, who are prophets, was that they called people to repentance and they warned them of the consequences of their sin from deviating from God's Word. Now what happens is that as they give those consequences, that takes place, what, what that does is that helps us frame what God will do in the future. So, God, so the prophet says to Israel, listen, don't abandon the covenant of the Lord God, or other nations will come in and they will conquer you. God, God offers specifics in that prophecy of, of, uh, of punishment, and wouldn't you know it, it comes true, because it's consistent with God's word. The New Testament office of a prophet is someone who can boldly speak truth, who can say, this is what God's Word says. We can't deviate from it. This is what we, who, who we need to be. So, that means that we need to remember that as the, as, the, as the early church was starting, as the church at Ephesus was trying to navigate early Christian life, they didn't have all the letters that came of Scripture that we have today. So God had given specifically people in the church who would speak truth to the community and say, this is how we need to live based on the Scripture. And up until this point in, in the history of the church, all that the church had was a handful of letters from the Apostle Paul, this one included, and all of the Old Testament Scripture. So what he's saying here is that God has given us prophets on purpose to call us back to godly scriptural living. And that gift continues to this day. 
that there are people who will stand up and they will speak truth and they speak it boldly and they can't help themselves. Um, I know a number of people that are this way and honestly, sometimes it's infuriating because it seems like they don't have any tact. They just speak the truth. Then he goes on and he says that some are given as evangelists. These are people who are gifted uh, to be messengers who are eager to spread the message of hope in Christ. We see this in uh, the book of Acts with the evangelist Philip. Philip was one of the, uh, not the apostle Philip, but the deacon Philip, who was chosen in Acts chapter 6 to serve the church in Jerusalem. God gifts him as an evangelist to the people. And so we see him immediately after the stoning of Stephen go out into Samaria and begin to spread the gospel. He's the one who tells the Ethiopian eunuch um, about the gospel as he's reading Isaiah. An evangelist is someone who is gifted not in um, convincing people that they need Jesus. An evangelist is someone who has a heart for the nations, who has a heart for people to know God. The last group that he talks about are pastors and teachers. These are people who have been given to God's people as shepherds and communicators of God's word. And he says for, the, for this reason that they've been given uh, for the equipping of the saints. This is verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, their job is to be an example of righteousness to their flocks as they equip them to be used by God in whatever way that they have been deployed by heaven. So let's talk about these pastors, what that should look like. So what is Christ making? This is our last point here, these last three verses. He goes on to talk about um, that the reason why God has given these, these men, pastors and teachers to the church is, church, is to equip the saints for the work of service. For this, for this end, look at verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the full knowledge of the Son of God, to mature to a mature man, to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. These pastors and teachers are dedicated to the building up of the body in pursuit of making all believers, believers attain the unity of the faith and the full knowledge of the Son of God. So think about this. Their primary task is not just to build faith and educate people. Their job is to literally build people to be to attain the, a Christ-like mindset and also to be builders of the unity of the church. So how do they do that? I want you to notice something here. That a pastor's work is not just to tell people about the Bible. He says that they he says our job is to shape them so that they become self-feeders and not uh, theologically immature. So that they will be no longer be children tossed to and throw by waves of theology and doctrine. So why is that? Here are some of the traps that we have in front of us. So the, the, one of the reasons why we have this awkward pause at the first of class when I ask you for a testimony is because this is part of my, part of my calling as, as a pastor of Evergreen is to demand these types of answers. Because if I'm honest, the comfortable thing for me to do is just to open my Bible and just start teaching you. And just go through, okay, this text means this, 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 and this. But my job is not just to educate people. My job is to look for opportunities to challenge them to grow. I don't know if you've, if you've listened to Erica's lesson from a couple weeks ago. I just got it up on the podcast just this last week. She'll tell you at the first lesson, this is not my comfort zone. This is not where I want to be. In fact, there are people that God has put in my life that as I watch, I see God moving them. And He gives me the opportunity to be able to see ways that they need to be sharpened. That they have a gift that needs to be expressed. They need to, they need to work out those spiritual muscles. My job as a pastor is to see that 
offer the opportunity and pray that they rise to the challenge. And it's not because, besides the point of equipping the saints for ministry, it's also because I need to be someone who is diligent to protect people from the attacks of the enemy. So look at, look at what these attacks might be. He says that so that they will no longer be children. Throughout the Scripture, people are described as children of God, right? But Paul rebukes the church at Corinth because they have not matured in their faith. They're still ignorant of what God's Word says. If Satan can't, can't, can't keep us away from grace, can't keep us away from the Gospel, he will do everything that he can to make us ignorant of what God's Word teaches us. Think about this. Is a child more apt to be overwhelmed in a situation that they're unfamiliar with than an adult? 100%. Because they don't know what's going on. If Satan can keep you ignorant of God's Word, that means that he can keep you perpetually in a state of distress. He will keep you perpetually in a state of anxiety and fear. But notice, Paul tells Timothy in his second letter to Timothy that God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a disciplined mind, a mind that has been honed and sharpened by God's Word. So one of the, one of the reasons why a pastor needs to be equipping the saints for ministry is not just to do more work. It's so that you can have a, you can have a confident life as you navigate your marriage, as you navigate your friendships, your relationships, your, your family dynamics, as you raise your children. All of these things are important because the, the, the pastor has to not let people stay as little babies. That means there has to be conscious raising. One of the things that, that I have learned over the years raising our girls is that parenting is not something that you just take as it comes. Parenting is something that's intentional. You have to think ahead about what's coming. You can't just say, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll take care of that when we get there. Is that true with developing anybody? If you've led any kind of a person in any kind of capacity, you look at their strengths and their weaknesses, you find ways that you can build them up to a better person. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about discipleship, developing people. He says that, that we do this so that they're not tossed here and there by waves that are carried about by every wind of doctrine. James talks about this type of a person, that they're unstable in all their ways. This is someone who prays for God to interact in their life, but then when it comes time for them to become obedient to what he, he tells them, they abandon him and they, they, they practice only what they know. One of, the, one of the challenges of being a pastor is to tell people to stop diverting back to their ignorance. It's one thing to know the truth. It's a whole other thing to obey the truth. And so as a pastor, my number one question is, what does the Bible say about that? Not because, I, uh, not because I, I'm always trying to quiz people about the right answer, but because that's literally where the answers are. A pastor, a teacher, someone who mentors others is someone who, who sees that this is a real point of attack from the enemy. That if he can purposefully keep people ignorant, we can, um, we can fall, fall to his schemes. Now, in this is a warning. There, there is a very real deception that if we just don't try, we won't fail. That is not an excuse. We can't purposefully be ignorant about godly things and think that we're going to be okay. As we're going to see here in a second, the enemy hunts us. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, oh, well, I'm laying all these little traps. So maybe they'll trip into it one day. He is actively hunt, hunting us. Peter tells us that he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is someone who knows his prey. And he knows you because he's hunted your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents. He knows exactly what, what, your, uh, what your bait template is. 
For some of us, it's different than the others. But he knows how to hunt us. We have to be, uh, we have to be mature and alert because if not, we will be accepting every single thing that comes our way. We need to know what's true. They need to also uh, avoid the trickery of men. The word that's translated as trickery is from a Greek noun that implies a person cheating at dice. They're grifters who cheat others at gambling. Scripture says that the enemy is actively looking for suckers, people that he can deceive. And also remember that people will actively try to deceive us. You want to be wise with your finances? You want to be wise with your resources and your assets? Be a student of the Word. Be a mature believer, someone who is is abiding with Christ. And you will avoid traps of the enemy. You will avoid sinful people who are instruments of the enemy. Paul describes himself um, in Ephesians as someone who is lost in his trespasses and sins. He says that I am the foremost sinner. I am the chief sinner. If you go back and you read the account of the book of Acts, what it says about Saul is that he was an instrument of the enemy. So that means that the people who are not truly believers are also going to be manipulating us. And we need to make sure that we understand the truth of what God's Word says so that we can avoid those traps. The last thing is he says that we need to avoid craftiness and deceitful scheming. The word craftiness is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe the way that the religious leaders tried to trap Jesus. The threat from the enemy is not just random or simply by opportunity, it's purposeful and planned. He's smart about laying traps for God's people. And so when you think about why, why, do we, why are we called to these specific things, it's because God has given each of us a task to do and we bring strength to the body of Christ. And if we fail to, ex- we, if we fail to express those callings, those giftedness, what happens is we are denying our, our community the divine interaction that God has purposely put us in place to contribute to our community. Man, I hear, I hear stories all the time of pastors who get in the, the, the tail end of their lives, tail ends of their career, and they mail it in for years at a time. They'll get up and they'll preach and they'll teach. There's no pastoring. There's no shepherding. There's no discipleship. They just coast. They collect a paycheck. And they just, they're fine with that. Meanwhile, the church is dying because there's no intentional shepherding. On the same way, those who have been given the gift, for instance, of hospitality, who never host people, no one will know the warmth of Christian community without you. And if you deny the expression of that gift, what happens is you deny God's ability to do things in the lives of the people that you say you love. That's true for every gift, not just for those who are pastors. Our enemy is smart. We also have to be smart. As Jesus says, wise as serpents, but harmless as doves says that we are supposed to speak to each other and recognize the truth and to speak it in love. That is, mature believers will have the ability to see others as Christ sees them. The love that's described here in... um, Which verse is this? I lost my place. Is is agape. It's a godly love. It's a love that is um, the same love as a parent has for their child. The primary goal of all of this is to build mature believers. And he says that we do this through Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body. I read something this week about um, this idea that uh, I can have a relationship with God, I can have a good relationship with God, but not be in fellowship with His people. 
That's like saying my head, my body can survive without my head. It's not the way that it works. We have to desire to be with one another. Now, we may not interact with each other directly sometimes, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a deep love for each other. It is in Him that the whole body is joined and held together, is what Paul says, by what every joint supplies. In other words, we rely on each other. That God, He saved the lost soul and He joins them to Himself. And according, it says, according to the, to the properly measured working of each individual part, He causes the growth of the body for the building up of love itself. In other words, Christ uses the gifts that He has supplied to each member of the body to do four things. Number one, to grow each member in their Christ-likeness. Not Christ-likeness. In other words, think about this. Your gift that God has given you is how He is growing other people to be mature believers in Christ. Your gift has a direct impact on other people, whether you think it does or not. Secondly, that He holds the body together. He preserves the unity of the church by us actually contributing to each other. Number three, that He causes the body to grow through the testimony of their lives. He increases the size of the community. One of the things that we say often is that healthy things grow. Right? Healthy things grow. And the fourth thing is that He builds up the body as a whole through love. He cultivates a healthy community. So what does all this mean? Right? If I was to say, man, I really, I really love the muscles in my body. They're great. But tendons... I don't really care about that. I've been learning this. I've been learning this lesson these last several weeks. I um, I overdid it when I was exercising the other day, and I hurt my shoulder. Something I didn't realize. You medical professionals will know this already, but um, there are little bitty muscles inside your joints that stabilize the way that your body is supposed to move. And if you overdo it with your big muscles, eventually those little muscles they they stop being able to keep up and they will get injured. And your body doesn't work the way that it should. Everybody focuses on the big muscles, right? Your, your thighs, your quads, and your, and your hamstrings, or your biceps and your triceps, or your chest muscles. But nobody ever talks about the little stabilizing muscles. And yet they're important. Nobody talks about the parts of the body that we tend to just forget about. Like the spleen. Do you know you'll die if your spleen doesn't work? You know, there are things that are important for us that we've got to remember that we are part of this, that God has uniquely given us unity, but not uniformity. The enemy loves to come in and tell us that that somehow that we're not valuable, that we don't contribute to what God is doing, but that's not true. Each one of us has something that we contribute. But the key to this is not to think that I've got some divine superpower that God has, has given me this way to just overcome and, and contribute to the body. God has chosen to give you a specific equipment and then He has given you to the church. The gift is still His. He is giving it through you. And by refusing to express that gift, what happens is that we are refusing to express God to our community. So it bears to reason that, if, that if, if Christ is the head of the body and He uses the body in such a crucial part of the gospel that a believer can't survive outside the Christian fellowship. And to be outside of Christian fellowship is to be outside of fellowship with Christ. 
So why is it important for you to be in church on Sunday? Why is it important for you to be in a, in a group like this? Why is it important for you to be in a small group or in discipleship relationships? Not because I think it's healthy for you. And it's not because Pastor Michael thinks it's healthy, healthy for you. It's because God's Word commands it of us. It commands it of us to have relationships like this. Does that mean that, that I can take what He has commanded and, and make it optional? Absolutely not. Is it difficult to get up on a Sunday morning and come to, come to Bible study at 9 a.m. when you've come to work every day this last week at 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning? Is it, is it difficult to, uh, does it seem like it's, it's more challenging to, uh, to make time for godly relationships? Have you ever thought that the same enemy who's trying to keep you from maturing in your faith will work overtime on Sundays to keep you away from God's people? When do the excuses come? Do you ever think to yourself on a Monday morning or Tuesday morning, you know what, I've had a long night. I'm just going to sleep in and I'll just, I'll just call into work. Or I'll just, you know, I'll just be on the Zoom. I just won't go into the office. We never think about that. We go to work because it's part of, of what we do with our lives. But it somehow it seems like on Sunday morning, whenever the alarm goes off, even though we have a whole extra hour to get ready to be at church, we go, oh man, you know what? I just really have had a long night. I really had a long week. I need a little extra time to sleep. Why do those thoughts only come on Sunday mornings? Why do they only come on Saturday nights? Could it be that there's someone who is actively working against us, integrating ourselves into God's community? To be out of Christian fellowship is to be out of relationship with Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, that the gathering of the saints is what, is what God uses to build up our ability to love each other and to spur us to good works. In order for a believer to live a satisfied and full life according to God's design, they have to be a contributing part of a local church. It's impossible to live without a commitment to a specific body of believers and still claim to be living a godly life. So the question is, in what ways are you cultivating a deep love for the church in your family? In what ways are you cultivating a deep love for the church and your family? Do you speak about life group in a way that gives life to people? Instead of, oh man, we got a life group tonight. It's, wow, we've got life group tonight. Instead of, oh, we got to go to Sunday schools because Philip's going to give us the third degree, right? That's not me making you convicted, by the way. It's, man, I get to go be with people that I love and I get to study God's word. Instead of, oh man, I got to go to church on Wednesday night. What if a sincere love for the saint was, was something that you, you cultivated within your family? That it's not I have to, it's I get to. That I get to be with people that genuinely love, love me and care about me. And the thing is, the more quantity time you have with people, the more quality time you have with them, and the more you grow to love them. I have found that the reason why most people don't love God's people is because they haven't spent enough time with God's people. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.